Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Pastor and Mrs. Bailey are away. If you're wondering, I think they're in Mexico. Did anybody get a postcard? Yes, Doug shaking his head, Mexico. This morning we're looking at Psalm chapter 3. And in order to understand the psalm, you really need a large bit of backstory. There's a very large section of uh, the book of 2 Samuel. In fact, from chapters 11 through chapters 20, and they're large narratives telling the history that's, that's leading up to the psalm and that provides us the understanding for Psalm 3. And so I'm going to take you through that. I'm going to try to do it quickly. If you're not familiar with these historical accounts, I'm sorry. There'll be some places where you'll say, okay, he must be missing out something there. But I'm going to try to lead you through it so that we can get to the place where we can come to understand a little better the context for Psalm chapter 3. So one thing you need to know is at the beginning is uh, we have David the king of Israel who wrote the psalm by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's in the, on the occasion of his flight from Jerusalem to escape his son's revolt, his son's attempt to overthrow his uh, kingship. And so to understand this, you have to understand David, his family life a little bit. So if you want to know who David, David was a king. He had several wives and several concubines. Uh, he had several of the wives at the early part of his kingship when he ruled in Hebron for seven and a half years, and that's where a lot of his children were born in Hebron. And then when he moved to Jerusalem, he had more children by other wives, and he had children by his concubines. Uh, I, I don't know how to understand concubines. When I say concubines, Dan Sparks, uh, try to understand it. Dan Sparks makes the appropriate face of what, what you try to do to explain what a concubine, who a concubine is. He kind of goes like that. A concubine, I guess, is a wife that isn't covered by your insurance or something, okay? So, of course, that's not true, but it's, it's a different kind of construction, but he had children by these wife-slash-concubines. But his earliest children were born in Hebron by his first wives. And among them, there are three that, we, that are of import for the next step in the history. One is Amnon. That is his oldest son. And then a second is Absalom, who's dealt with in the, in the psalm. That is his son by another wife while in Hebron. Absalom had a full sister named Tamar. Okay, so you have Amnon, the oldest son, Absalom and Tamar, half-siblings to Amnon. Okay? And so that gives you a little bit of the history of David's family. There's a lot more to it. If you look in the history, you'll note that in, in the history that's in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, it lists it out. You'll note that Michael, one of his wives, isn't listed, and I think... That may be, they think, because she didn't have any children, and so they didn't list her in that because there wasn't any genealogical 
following to, to uh, her life as offspring weren't coming from her. And so that's just the backstory to David's family life and his children. Okay, already a little chaotic, but then it gets worse. So then you get to first, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and you have the account of David's sin against Uriah the Hittite. And so <clears throat> David uh, is a king, and he should go to war and lead his people in war. And they, his people went to war on a certain occasion, and he sent his generals. He decided to stay home. And whether or not he had premeditated this, I don't know. But as he's staying home and he's up on his roof and he's looking over the city, he sees Bathsheba taking a bath. He lusts after her. He calls for her to his house. Bathsheba is Uriah's wife. Uriah is one of the soldiers that's serving him in the battlefield at that time. Uh, David commits adultery with her, and a child is, is produced in that adultery. And through a series of events, David then sees to it that Uriah is murdered. He's killed in the battle, murdered because David orchestrated it, not because he was killed as a normal consequence of the battle, but because David actually orchestrated him dying in the battle. And so you have this sin that is followed by Nathan, the prophet, coming to David to bring David God's judgment, temporal judgment. And so Nathan comes, and there's a story that's familiar to most of us about Nathan telling this story to kind of trap David. He tells a story about a man who has a sheep and how the neighbor kills the sheep and takes the sheep that the man loves. And David gets angry because David can relate because he's been a shepherd. He loves sheep, and it was a, you know, it's a gnarly story. Then Nathan points the finger, and he says, now you're the guy that did it. You're the one that took this man's wife and then had him killed. And then David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Immediately he repented, but he then was told by Nathan what the consequences of his sin would be. Temporal consequences. God forgave David right then. When David said, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan said, the Lord has removed this from you. You will not die. You've been forgiven. But that doesn't mean there won't be consequences for the sin. So the first consequence that Nathan gives is that David's house will be subject to being a household of blood. That is, there would be bloodshed and, and nasty stuff that would follow David in his home. And I don't know, as I was studying to prepare for this, I wondered about David's desire to build the temple later on because David wanted to build a temple for the Lord and God said, no, you can't build it. And one of his reasons was that David's house was a household of blood. I had never thought before that perhaps David was denied the privilege of building the temple because in part of this sin with Bathsheba and the consequence of it. The second uh, temporal punishment that David would receive is uh, that what he had done in private with Bathsheba committing adultery, Nathan said, God will see to it that this will happen to you, but it won't be in private, it'll be in public. In other words, there's going to be a demonstration, there's going to be an adulterous circumstance that will take place in your family coming out of your own household, and it will, it will basically be a hundred times worse than what you did, because what you did, you did in the dark and private, this will be done on the rooftops, and the whole community will see it. There won't be any hiding of it. And the third consequence that Nathan gave him was that the child that was conceived by he and Bathsheba would die. That child would die. 
because God said we, we can't have someone in your position having been given what you've been given to demonstrate to the nations and to the world that something like this could go on and as a result this child cannot live. And so the child did die. So that was the temporal punishment. Then you go to the next chapter in 2 Samuel. And that's where we come back again to Amnon, um, Absalom, and Tamar. And so if you know this account, you know that uh, Amnon lusted after his half-sister, Tamar. And he conspired to have her come into his house. He pretended he was sick. He conspired to have her come into his house. And then he raped her. Okay? And that brought about a rift between Absalom and Amnon. Absalom was furious. And from that point on, after Amnon had raped his sister... From that point on, Absalom, I think, conspired as to how he could kill Amnon. This is David's firstborn son, Amnon. So Absalom does. He has a party. He has some, uh, a band of murderers all set in place. Amnon comes to the party. Absalom pulls the trigger. The murderers kill Amnon, and Amnon is dead. Absalom then flees to another country because he fears for his life that David will have him killed for killing the firstborn son, Absalom's half-brother. Getting confused yet? Still with me? Okay. Absalom is in exile. David longs to have Absalom back. David loved Absalom. He longed to have Absalom back. So Joab, the general of David's army, Joab sees that David wants Absalom back, so he makes a plan to bring Absalom back from exile. And he sets up a circumstance where David can entertain the thought of bringing Absalom back. And, and, And in fact, through Joab's work, Absalom is brought back from exile. And so he lives in Jerusalem, but he's not seeing the king. The king won't see him. And that makes Absalom angry. And Absalom has a house nearby, Joab's house. And so Absalom says, I know what I'll do. I'll set Joab's fields on fire so he'll come talk to me and I'll get him to get me an audience with my father. So he does. He sets the fields on fire. And Joab comes over and says, what's with the fields being set on fire? And Absalom says, what's the point of me living here if I can't see my father? Well, I want to continue with Joab before we go on with what happens. It's fascinating, Joab's role in all of this history, right? Joab is the one responsible for Absalom coming back. Joab's the one responsible for Absalom being reunited with his father after Absalom killed his brother. And then when Absalom rebels and, and, there's, a, and there's a fight between David and his forces and Absalom and his forces... Guess who kills Absalom? Joab. Runs him through with a spear three times. Right? And finally, when David is mourning Absalom's death, Joab is the one who rebukes him about his inappropriate mourning of Absalom's death 
in the, in the aftermath of the conflict. But now we've got to jump back. I went ahead just to take care of Joab, put him on a shelf, all right? So Absalom is brought home from exile. He initiates the revolution. And David flees over Kidron, the brook, with his faithful. Kidron is a valley to the east of the city of Jerusalem. There was a brook that ran through it. David crossed the brook with his people on his way, fleeing out of the city. And Absalom sets up his, uh, uh, his kingship in the city. And the first thing that's done, nearly the first thing that's done is Absalom goes up on the roof and he sleeps with the concubines, David's concubines that are left in the house to take care of it. That was part of the reading of the scripture this morning. And so the prophecy given by Nathan is fulfilled right there at that moment concerning what would be done. Right? Very sobering. David then further crosses the Jordan River going east and north. And they're not sure where the city of Mahanaim is that he went to. They're not sure where that is now. They think it may be by a place called Jabez Gilead, near where the Jabbok River comes in to the Jordan, which is maybe 40 to 45 miles away from Jerusalem. So it'd be like David traveling barefoot and bareheaded. This, the Bible's very specifically saying that, whether it's, I think it's part of David's contrition, humility, humiliation as he leaves the city. Barefoot and bareheaded, he travels 40 to 45 miles to this city. They cross the Jordan to this city. Okay. That's a very fast synopsis of 2 Samuel chapters 11 through 20, leaving out an awful lot of detail, right? What a mess. What a mess. Now, Anybody here that can tell messy stories like that? Am I the only one that has messy? Okay, I got a half hand. I got, oh, I got a three-quarter hand. Come on, you guys come from families where you don't have a mess? Oh, oh, the great awakening. It's out of this mess, out of this chaos, a mess about a father and a son. A great deal of it has to do with a father and a son. Out of this mess that the Holy Spirit inspires David to write Psalm 3. And so let's read our text this morning. Please stand with me as we read. I'm not going to read the Selahs. At the end of, there's three verses that end of the word Selah. We don't know what this word means. It might mean some kind of musical annotation. It might have been some kind of a, like saying amen. We're not sure what it means. I'm, I sometimes read it, sometimes don't. But if you're wondering what that is and why I won't read it, that's what that is and that's why I'm not going to read it. Okay? But don't worry. I see it's there. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, 
there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You have a massive churning conflict going on in 2 Samuel in these chapters. And it's so complex. And its complexities are in great part because of the sins of many people as they're churning and interacting with one another. And as we read it, we can certainly understand the psalm from David's perspective because we've just gone through the history. So we can start to see David as the words are being penned and as he's writing this song, we can start to see what he means when he said, my adversaries have increased, many are rising against me, and on. We can understand this. We can see it. We can also see it from the perspective of Christ because this psalm is understood by many to be uh, a psalm that deals with Jesus Christ and who he was, the fact that his adversaries increased, the fact that, that he had someone very close to him who betrayed him, like uh, Absalom betrayed David, the fact that Christ was mocked as David was mocked, even to the point of Christ crossing the brook, Kidron. That's what he did on the night he was betrayed. He crossed the brook Kidron and went into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the east side of the brook. And there he was pursued by the mob. And there he was arrested as the mob led by Judas brought Jesus, uh, or brought the mob, as Judas brought the mob to Jesus. It can be understood by the, from the perspective of David, from the perspective of Christ, and it can be understood from the perspective of of every Christian who lives in this world. And that's the perspective I want to see as our goal this morning, but most specifically, particularly the perspective of Christian fathers as we look at the psalm. So let's start with verse 1. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Well, we know who was rising against David. It was Absalom, his son. Absalom, who he loved. Absalom, uh, who he adored even after Absalom was killed in the uprising. Who else was rising against David? Well, Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a major counselor to David, somebody who was very close to David, who gave him advice. And Ahithophel rejected David and followed Absalom. And Ahithophel arose against him. Well, who else rose against David? Well, thousands of people. Many of whom David would recognize. Many of whom probably were in his court. Many of whom he would recognize and have been close to. 
who were opposing him and setting themselves up against him. This is a a picture for us to understand when opposition increases. Opposition grows. When there seems to be combinations of opposition. You remember uh, a few weeks or months ago when we had the sermon on the uh, Tower of Babel? You all remember that? What did God say when he stopped the men? What, What was one of his reasoning for stopping the men from building the tower? If they do this, what? Nothing will be impossible to them, right? And it was obvious that they were building it in opposition, in defiance of God. Well, what you had in the Tower of Babel is you had a lot of bad men combining together to do a wicked thing. And they could do it because it was easy to do at the time. And since that time, after God dispersed the nations and and scattered the languages, it's been more difficult for that to occur, not on a global scale, right? But guess what? It's not so difficult anymore. It's not so difficult anymore. I was thinking as I was preparing and thinking about how uh, adversaries have increased and many are rising against me, and you might have thought about adversaries in your community, you might have thought about adversaries in your city, you might have thought about adversaries in your state, you might have thought about adversaries in your country, but now the reality is the, the, uh, uh, the conspiracy is global. It's global. I was reading a story about, about the billionaire jet set, right? And what they do, they have a, they, you have to be a billionaire, to do this, right? And there are many of them. And so they have jets, all of them, and they, they have like 13, 14 places they go through the world all through the year where they just go and do stuff. And it's all planned and it's all programmed and it's them exerting their money and their influence and their wickedness on the world. But it's easy now for that, those exertions to come. So when the state of Indiana is dealing with something like REFRA, right, where does the opposition come from? The state of Indiana? No. The whole country has groups of people ready to oppose Indiana, and the world is ready to exert its pressure. Men who go all around the world exerting their influence exert their pressure. And so opposition has increased. Adversaries have increased. I was looking for a quote from Edmund Burke, the quote that you guys may remember. uh, The only thing that's necessary for... uh, The only thing necessary for bad men to something is that good men... The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is that good men do nothing, right? Have you heard that before? Now, I don't, know if it, I don't know if it's true or not. What I read was that that's not really his quote. But I did find a quote from him that's very apropos to this uh, sermon this morning, to this idea about the adversaries increasing. And this is what he says. When bad men combine, when bad men get together, 
The good must associate, else they will fall one by one, an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. You follow that? When bad men combine, the good must associate, else they will fall one by one, an unpitied sacrifice in a contemptible struggle. Well, guess what? The bad men are combining. Now, the bad men have combined off and on all through history. But right now, the bad men are combining big time. And good men must associate. I got an email, the pastors got an email this past week from an organization in Indiana of pastors who are working to put together an association to oppose the sinfulness in our state. And as the pastors were going back and forth about that association, we're wondering who's on it, we're wondering what their theology is, you know, you guys been watching this, Stephen, you know what I'm talking about. You're wondering what this and what this is, and what you realize is, if we don't associate, there will be no cooperation with us to oppose. And the thing is that good men don't tend to associate for those kinds of reasons, Good men don't typically tend to associate for those kinds of reasons. Why not? Well, good men are too busy, too preoccupied being good men. You know, it takes a lot of work to be good men in the community, to be good husbands and fathers, just good men. It's a lot of work. And so if you, if you have to stop to be preoccupied to associate for the purposes of being against something, that's difficult. That's different. Wicked people, that's easy. Wicked people can gather to associate, to cooperate in wickedness so easily. You can just find groups and groups and groups and groups and groups and groups and groups of happily associating wicked people. Right? Because what they want to do is uh, validate their wickedness. And they want to stamp out God. So they're motivated. And they're not particularly busy being good men. We live in an evil age. Isaiah 5, starting at verse 18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him, this is God they're talking about, they say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work, that we may see it. And let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. They're mocking God. Let's see you, God. Come on. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts 
and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. That's the end. That's their end. But in the meantime, they like to take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. And men, we have to wake up. We have a job to do. We have to wake up and associate. (laughs) We associate here, and it's very appropriate. This is where godly and good men should associate, in the church, as we worship the Lord. But we also need to associate in our declaration of God's truth and his law, in the face of the onslaught of wicked partnerships that are coming in our face. If you remember the account of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem in the book of Nehemiah, remember what the men had to do. Remember they didn't get much sleep. Remember that they walked around with a sword in one hand and a, and a rock in the other. And they built the wall all the while ready to defend themselves. And so here we are, men, we're building the church. We're leading our families to God. We're calling our neighbors to come to Jesus. We're loving Bloomington. We're desiring to build God's kingdom. And we must do so at the same time, prepared, awake, understanding that there is an onslaught of wickedness against us and live by faith concerning it. You guys... Verse 2. <laughs> You're going to get verse 1 and verse 2 and then a real quick, okay? Just understand. Okay. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. A quote from theologian John Gill. Quote, David's enemies looked upon his case to be desperate that it was impossible he should ever extricate himself from it, yea, that God himself either could not or would not save him. And in like manner did the enemies of Christ say that that God wouldn't save him when he was hanging on the cross. And how frequent it is for the men of the world to represent the saints as in a damnable state and to call them a damned set and generation of men as if there was no salvation for them. And how often does Satan suggest unto them that there is no hope for them? And they may as well indulge themselves in the sinful lusts and pleasures. And how often do their own unbelieving hearts say to them that there is no salvation in Christ for them, though there be for others, and that they have no interest in the favor of God and shall be eternally lost and perish. And so we have the world saying, God's not going to save you. We have Satan say, God's not going to save you. And then our hearts, because we're wicked and sinful, we think to ourselves, coming out of our own hearts, how could God have anything to do with me? I must be one who will perish. Think about David's conscience. (laughs) Do you think he was remembering Nathan's prophecy as all this was transpiring? Do you think he was understanding his role in the whole mess as it came about? Do you think he was remembering when he said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord? Do you think he was clinging to Nathan's words, God will not hold this against you. He has forgiven you. 
It's removed from your account. All of those things in David's mind and heart as he's processing through this, as he's working through this. Huge opposition. It's one reason why I wonder if the psalm wasn't written later after everything had been done and the dust was settled because of the way David responds. I know that when I'm in the middle of those kinds of things, and I know, listen, I'm not, in, I'm not inspired by the Holy Spirit. David was inspired by the Holy Spirit in writing this psalm. But I know when I'm in the middle of those kinds of things, the onslaught and my own conscience is assaulting me, I can't imagine writing the words that he wrote. Do you understand? It, but later, when I'm out of it, then I can think, okay, yeah, and I give glory to God and praise him, but in the midst of it, it's hard for me to imagine. There is such an onslaught, there was such an opposition mounted against David, and there is such an opposition mounted against us. Yesterday in Italy, there was a march of hundreds of thousands of people protesting against homosexual unions in Italy, right? Hundreds of thousands of people. But they weren't just protesting against homosexual unions, they were also protesting against the Italian government's intention to have the school system teach, uh, what's the word, cross-dressing to their children. They don't have the option of homeschooling. And literally, they want to teach the programs that are going wild through Europe right now. They want to teach the programs where they have the boys come wear dresses one day and the girls come wear slacks one day. So that they can identify and they can feel the other ones and have the boys play with dolls and have the girls play with trucks and just, and then they talk about it. And then talk about body parts. I'm not talking about high school students now. I'm talking about children. And so they were protesting it. So what happens? In the, in the midst of the protest, this is what the news, who the news quotes. The news quotes uh, Vincenzo Brana, now if I'm saying that wrong, I'm sorry, head of the long-standing Archigay Gay Rights Association in Bologna, Bologna, quick to point out, this is what he says. He says, today is World Refugee Day. Today is World Refugee Day. With hundreds of thousands of migrants in Italy facing an uncertain future, their problems are an urgent issue which concerns us all. Those who take to the streets to talk of other things show that they are living on another planet, and I would recommend leaving them on that planet alone. Now, my interpretation of what he says is, there is no deliverance for them in God. You see? How bizarre that he wants to alienate people on International Refugee Day. It's a little irony, isn't it? And also, when you think about it, yesterday was also World Productivity Day. And I think we can multitask. We can love the refugees and still try to keep the government from cross-dressing our children.
We see accusations from Satan from the world, from our own hearts. There is no deliverance for them in God. I'm sure David thought that. I know I think it. I think it coming from my own heart. Fathers have faith. God pronounces forgiveness for sins. There are temporal judgments. They exist. But just like David walked through the temporal judgments put upon him by God, so you and I can walk through the temporal judgments. And just like David walked through opposition that wasn't of his making, so you and I can walk through opposition that's not of our making because God is there to deliver us. He is there. Verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. David confesses that God is his protection. God is your protection. He is my protection. He lifts the heads of those who are, who are uh, under it for whatever reason. He lifts them up. If they're in persecution, if they're in the results of the oppression of their own sin and their own consciences, God, when they become contrite and said, I have sinned against the Lord, God lifts them up. He lifts up their head like he did with David and so many others and delivers them. Do you know what it means? Do you understand what it means for God to lift up your head? Fathers, men, Christian, do you know? Verse 4, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Do you cry out to the Lord? Do you pray for your wives, for your children, for your grandchildren, for your great-grandchildren, for your descendants, for your co-workers, for your church, fathers, husbands, Christians? Do we pray and cry out to God? Save them. Save them. Do we pray and cry out that he will save us? And then with equal fervor pray and cry out that he will save them. And have you seen God answer? I've seen it. <laughs> I can tell you. I've seen it. And if you haven't seen it, then you haven't been crying out. And you need to cry out that God would save Verse 5, I lay down and slept, I awoke, and the Lord sustains me. What, what allows a man in such a, a difficult time to be able to lay his head down in peace? What allows a man to sleep and find rest under such opposition? What allowed Christ to be in a boat with his disciples in the middle of a storm and just to be sleeping with no worry? They were harried. They were terrified but they had little faith. And he stood and he said to the waves, be still. And they were. There is peace when the Lord is a shield about you. Verse six, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me round about. Thousands of people. David had thousands of people opposed to him at that time. Think about uh, Elijah when 
there's an army, a neighboring army that's come into the city where he is, who's trying to capture, they're trying to capture him because they understand that Elisha is the one that's been tipping off his king about, you know, where the troop movements are going to be. That's a pretty good uh, uh, war plan. It's a good person to have a prophet who can actually tell you where all the troops are at any given time, right? And so Elisha is in the city. This neighboring army comes in the city. They're looking for him, and Elijah's servant is terrified. Oh, they're here. They're going to take us. Look at how many there are. And, and Elisha says, Lord, please open his eyes. And so the servant's eyes were opened, and he saw the spiritual world and the armies of God and chariots of fire all around him. And he thought to himself, huh, that's very different. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who set themselves up against me. Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Again, cry and plea for a salvation for yourself, for your families, for your children, for your neighbors, for your co-workers, and understand that God is the one who will avenge. He will avenge. He is holy. And he will avenge. Make no mistake. And verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be upon your people. Ephesians 6, verse 10 and following. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. He has all kinds of schemes. He has schemes on your street. He has schemes in your city. He has schemes against your heart. He has schemes in your extended family. He has schemes in the state, in the country, and in the world. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day should one ever occur. Should we ever have an evil day. Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view, Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Get your sword in one hand and your trowel in the other, men, Christians. 
Fathers, demonstrate for your wives and your children faith so that they will follow you in peace. We don't have fears in this world if we know who we're supposed to fear. And we have a God who is a shield about us, who lifts our head. Let's pray. And elders, would you come? Father, we thank you for your mercy to us today and your goodness and kindness. We thank you, dear Lord, that in the face of opposition, you have provided for us every good thing, but most importantly, the most powerful weapon of all time, the blood of your own son, freely given on our behalf. Oh, Lord, help us now as we Remember Jesus Christ and remember the salvation that you have provided and remember that in his body and blood we have life, eternal. Lord, give us faith now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.